Hello, friends. Oh my gosh, I have such high energy because I am just off of this amazing interview with today's guest, Shauna Marie Brown. But let me welcome you first. Let me say the hello thing. So hi, my name is Sarah Buino. I'm the host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And here we talk about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. And before we get into all the juicy details with Shauna today, I would just love to ask if you are a fan of the podcast to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it so much. And as always, I say, if you make me laugh in your review... I will read it out loud. And you know what? Actually, I keep saying that. No one's doing it. And I'm wondering if you don't want to be, (laughs) you don't want me to read your name out loud. Okay, so I won't if you don't want me to. I don't know. But if you could just rate and review, that would be amazing. If you want to connect, Instagram is the best way to do that. At Head Heart Therapy is my name there. You could also be a patron on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And any little bit is really helpful in supporting the podcast. So let me tell you about our wonderful, amazing guest, Shauna Marie Brown. So Shauna Marie Brown is an award-winning community healer, national speaker, and liberation-focused mind-body medicine practitioner. She's the founder and executive director of Kindred Community Healing and the principal consultant at Kindred Wellness, LLC. Trained as an integrative psychotherapist, Shauna has created life-changing community-based sacred spaces, honoring culture to equip Black women, youth, and change makers with the tools to heal themselves. I love Shauna so much. <laughs> And it will be evident to you in this conversation. I have learned so much from her, and I cannot recommend her work highly enough. So she shares with you at the end all of her handles where you can find her work. Do make sure that you check out her work because it is it's just incredible. I can't say okay, there are not enough words to express how much I adore her and adore her work. And I can't wait for you to adore her as well. So please enjoy Shauna Marie Brown. Shauna Murray Brown, I'm so happy to have you in front of me right now. Sarah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We were just talking before starting the recording that it's really odd when you have, like, I have a relationship with you because I've been learning from you for quite some time now, but you barely know me, but I'm going to act like we're best friends today. So this is fine. That's fine. I mean, at least I know that you was looking at me the whole time. Right. That's fine. Right. Right. I Googled you a little bit. I heard your voice sometimes. All right. A little bit, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we start with having you tell folks who you are and what you do? Who am I? Okay, y'all. So I'm from Baltimore. Baltimore City. I am a liberation-focused community healer. My work is to support folks in remembering how to heal themselves so that they can do the work to hold space for healing others. My work centers the needs of people of African descent, specifically those descendants of Africans enslaved in the U.S. I am somebody's mother, somebody's lover. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a social worker. I was trained as an integrative psychotherapist. And yeah, I really just be trying to be out here changing stuff. You're doing it. So I'll just tell folks too, I've been taking your decolonizing therapy with Black folks course. I took it in the fall. I loved it so much. I wanted my entire team to take it. So now I'm taking it again with my team. I have no idea how I found it. 
whatever you're doing, you're doing it right because I just stumbled upon it. So good job. <laughs> yeah, social media. Right? Yeah. Well, tell us, and I've listened to a couple podcasts with you, so I know a little bit about your backstory, but I would love for my my listeners to hear like why, how, tell us the journey to become a social worker and, and this specific liberation-focused work that you're doing. Yeah, so when I was a little girl, my mother struggles with addiction, and so does my father. And um, my auntie, she is a nurse or a retired nurse. Mm. She raised me, and he tried to teach me about addiction as an illness in my journey of trying to understand and really grieving the very present, vibrant, excitable parent that I had and then lost. It's a little different from like my relationship with my father. I would say that I didn't have a childhood relationship with him. But with my mom, I was just really, really deeply attached. She did a great job, okay? I'm suckling, all right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, right, like going into elementary school, You know, I remember she sat me down. I have a really distorted concept of time, and I'm sure it's because of the whirlwind of the things that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. But my mother, I believe it was like first or second grade, she explained to me that she struggled with addiction. She Mm -hmm. said, you know, mommy is sick. You know, I just want you to know it's not your fault. So, you know, if you see things changing, like that's what it is. And in my mind, you know, my mother had also struggled with alcoholism when I was younger. And I remember her telling me the story like I was in kindergarten or something. And I was like, Ma, can you stop drinking? And mm. she said, not, you know, so I tried her with drugs. Hey, Ma, right. can you stop getting high? That, it didn't work. Um, so, so I remember just being really deeply sad really yearning for that connection and imagining what could be done to ensure that other children didn't have to go through the same things. And that language around it didn't really come until maybe like middle school, late middle school, early Mm -hmm. high school. And it was through conversations with my auntie, right? Like when my auntie you know, she wanted me to be a neurosurgeon or an anesthesiologist. <laughs> you know, somebody that's going to roll in the dough. So my idea was, all right, like I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be somebody's doctor so I can solve this problem of addiction. I just figured, you know, maybe I could just cut the brain open, move some things around and get to whatever needed to be removed. <laughs> So that so that folks could dislodge this activity of addiction. And so through that and conversations with my aunt around why or how this could be resolved, I would ask questions like, how come they only doing therapy with my mother? Or, you know, don't they know that the family is impacted too? And so it was a mm-hmm. very early on sort of questions and envisioning around, you know, how this problem would be solved. And so by the time I, you know, went to college in my freshman year, I had a really clear understanding that what I was going to do was I was going to make a whole lot of money. And then I was going to use that whole lot of money to establish local healing spaces on the west side of Baltimore and the east side of Baltimore. If you're from Baltimore, you know that we rep our sides. So Mm. So I reckon I was like, it has to be like, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I'm like, well, we had to have one on the east side and one on the west side because the people on the east side ain't going to come to the west side. And my aunt told me to write it down. And so that was the beginning 
heightening of my sort of visioning of it being, of it feeling like home and feeling like a healing space. And when we fast forward to going to college, being first generation, asking a whole lot of questions, learning about oppression and racism and enduring it in multifaceted ways that led me to stumbling into social work. Because <laughs> clearly social work is not a neurosurgeon, y'all. <laughs> In case you were not clear. <laughs> right. And I'll share a little bit about how I stumbled into it. Essentially, unfortunately, I endured police brutality because I've always been an activist. Ever since I got into college, I was always, right, like, you know, an activist. Ask anybody at the University of Maryland College Park, they will tell you, you know, I was like, <laughs> The other Angela Davis, that's right, with the Afro and everything. But yeah, I, you know, saw police officers brutalizing young people at Six Flags. I recorded it. The police didn't like that. They snatched me up, dragged me and my then beloved now partner. How old are you at the time? This was my senior year in college. So 21-ish. Yeah. And I was on my way to law school because I had changed my mind with, with medicine. I was like, I don't like this biology. F that. Um, but I was like, but I want to be an attorney, right? Because the activist in me. Mm-hmm. So the police didn't like that. And so they yoked me up and they dragged me. They hit me a couple times. They arrested me so that I assaulted them out of thin air. And that was my introduction into why I didn't want to work in the legal system, working with mm. an attorney time using my scholarship money to pay for the legal fees, you know, I changed my mind. And at the time I was like, well, what am I do now? I, you know, can not go into law school? My law school application was removed because I had a felony charge of assaulting an officer on my record. Wow. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was like, well, what do I care about? I care about working with Black people. And I just started looking up jobs thinking I wouldn't go to school And I happened upon the School of Social Work where a dean at the time, you know, it was like the police officer that assaulted me on one side because my major was criminology, criminal justice and family studies. So the police officer that assaulted me on one side and then the School of Social Work was next to it. And I wasn't intending to talk to them, but I just walked over there to avoid making eye contact with those officers. And I happened upon a conversation about the School of Social Work. So that's a truncated version of mm-hmm. <laughs> abuse, atrocity, uh, really seeking healing, trying to navigate oppressive systems. Mm. And I'm curious, it feels, and maybe this is a little too directive to say this, I don't know, but it feels like you were meant to be a social worker, right? I don't know if that is how you feel. I, so, yeah. yeah. What do you feel in there? I mean, I know I'm meant to do things having to do with justice yeah. and transformation. Yeah. And I feel like the way that that was simply a path there. Social work in the ways we tend to think of it, I feel, you know, and I teach, right? It upholds systems of oppression and folks tend to not be aware of that or these systems are so daunting and, and lethal, right? Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming to even contend with the truths of that. Mm-hmm. but. I would say that social work was absolutely the path I needed to take in order to actualize my purpose. But I think that it could have come out if I ended up in law school and, you know, decided to nix that and, I don't know, study healing practices, right? Mm -hmm. I think that social work is positioned uniquely, though, 
in that it does allow for the multiplicity of practice, right? I can be an organizer, which I was. I can be a researcher, which I was. I can be a therapist, which I was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can be a professor, which they be trying to make me be. (laughs) Right? Let's not Um, even get into academia, right? I think that that flexibility really um, resonates with me in social work, that it should be for the people. And that's probably the only profession mm-hmm. that at least espouses to be about that life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and I really appreciate like, and I, I watched your face as I said it, because I knew it wasn't going to, I knew it wasn't the right thing. But one thing I super appreciate you is I find you very deliberate in your language and I think the moment that we're in in time right now where there's so much division and there's so much confusion around what is the truth and all of that, it's so important to be very deliberate with our words. And something I've come to thanks to this podcast is recognizing the way that we define what we think is a common language (laughs) just isn't always true, right? So that's one thing I super appreciate about your work. Well, thank you, Sarah. The truth is that, you know, talk to me and 20 more years, and I may have to add more, more descriptive because we know that language sort of like shifts over time. We said social worker 20 years ago would mean something different than what it means now. If I said, right. Or if we go, you know, even a hundred years from now, me being who I am, like then this sort of soul and embodied experience, perhaps it would have been, you know, like a hoodoo practitioner or would have been like a conjure work, like whatever. Mm might have been, I really do try to ensure that whatever message I'm trying to get to folks, that it it lands with them in a multiplicity of ways so they can really hear me, right? And I try to tease apart what mainstream society tries to make the words mean. Right. That it helps us to sort of illuminate and helps us to be more critical, about, you know, like, you know, somebody could just usurp some of these words. That's what that's what's happening, right? You usurp the word, you also interrupt the movement. Thank you for acknowledging that, but that's why. It's because I really want people to understand what it means now within context and really have a sense of critical awareness around what words mean now. Right, right. I don't have a question formulated yet, so I'm just going to say a bunch of words and we'll see what comes out, but... <laughs> But we obviously weren't around in the 60s. So now is a very specific, very electric, very charged time. How are you feeling about, first of all, being a human now, being a healer now, being a Black woman now, right? Like, how are you navigating your internal experience based on like all the shit fuck, right? Fuck shit, whatever we want to say, right? That's what we said earlier. Like, there's some fuck shit right now, right? Like, how are you? You know, I feel like if I look at it in terms of the pandemic specifically, so this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was not well at all. Same. I was totally, I was, I'm <laughs> like, oh, I got a sounds because I don't even have words for the level of despair Mm -hmm. and sadness, sorrow that I was feeling. Before the pandemic hit, the ways that I was being with myself, I mean, I was getting it done, right? So I'm I'm in a PhD program. 
I have a beautiful child. Juice Juice is three. Juice right? Juice. Oh my God. <laughs> juice Juice is three. Oh. You know, I'm deeply loved by my life partner and I have a pretty solid village of folks that, you know, are really for the Black liberation. And so in the midst of that, like when I try to get back, first, it's actually a little hard to remember. I know. <laughs> for the pandemic. Right. But, you know, the way that I was holding myself then it was cool. You know, I had my schedule and I was held by certainty. Mm. And now I'm really trying to create space for myself to hear myself more deeply. I feel like mm. in this moment, if I talk about how I'm dealing right now, I'm dealing by reorienting my priorities. Yeah. I'm dealing by really being in my body and sitting in the midnight hour, listening and noticing how I'm feeling when everybody is asleep. I took like a series of spiritual baths and did like an audio journal around like what was coming up for me during mm. uh, right after the inauguration as an attempt to sort of reclaim and reconnect for me, it's been important to be really clear about, for me, what does it mean to be free? Recognizing that liberation is collective, right? So freedom is individual. Do I even feel free? Because I didn't yes. the pandemic and I haven't. And some of the work that I'm doing for the people makes me feel confined and contained and makes me feel like I have to contort. And so I'm sort of contending with and communing with my own ancestors and communing with my spirit guides and seeking guidance of other wise, attuned Black and brown folk to support me, to bear witness to me in the ways that I bear witness to others. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to claim, I'm trying to create some space. Mm. Well, and when I think back to you telling the story of, of when you were little, really at a very early age, trying to conceptualize something outside of the box, right? Like that's how I, I see you as you're an expansive being, you know? And it's like <laughs> capitalism and all the white supremacy and that shit like puts us in these boxes, but you can't be contained. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you're finding a way to your own freedom and liberation through these practices. I'm trying, you know, and I think Keeping the things that I imagine in the realm of possibility has been really important. I had a conversation mm. with one of my brothers. His name is Eric Jackson. He does work in Black food sovereignty here in the city of Baltimore. I'm really, really tight with him. And we were just talking about, again, what does liberation, what might it actually look like? And when we say it's collective, how many people is that? Do you know what I mean? Like, are yeah. we saying everybody? And what does our history say? What does our lineage history say about what we should be reimagining right now to get to a space? And I told him, I was like, you know, I'm just trying to imagine for at least the next two generations. Because when I try to imagine for seven, I start to get discouraged. So talking to other folks that don't think that I'm weird or, you know what I mean? That, You're weird in the right ways. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> but not everybody thinks that, right? You know, mm -hmm. like not everybody thinks that or if folks think of it in a way that places me on a pedestal yeah. as opposed to in a way that's deeply humanizing and illuminating yes. for themselves. 
I think that when we put it in historical context, how it feels right now in this time being a healer is it feels so important to sit my ass down and really connect with the land and really connect to my ancestors and really be honest about the ways in which like I am completely in alignment and the ways that I'm not because of the system, right? Like the way that we might talk about being anti-capitalist, but we still have to go to the grocery store. We still have to, you know, can I be at least comfortable and compassionate with the complexity of the fact of the ways the system is atrocious without harming myself again? And I feel like the only way to that is for me to be quiet, for me to listen, for me to commune, and for me to surround myself with other folks trying to get to that vibration. Mm. Hey, therapists, do I have something exciting for you? Head Heart Conversations is a webinar series for psychotherapists designed to invite your inner healer to the forefront of your personal and professional life. At my practice, Head Heart Therapy, we approach healing from the inside out. We believe that in order to offer the best care to our clients, we therapists must do our inner healing work as well. At this point in history, we are called to move beyond the old ways of being and courageously step into a new paradigm. Therapists are poised to support our clients' transformation, but we must also transform ourselves. In this four-part series, we will invite participants to learn about themselves as well as enhance their clinical skills. The first webinar takes place on March 5th, and it's called Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And it's a call to action intended to challenge participants to step into their own healing with courage. As a special thank you to Conversations with a Wounded Healer listeners, you can get $20 off your order by using the code PODCAST when you register. For more information and to register, please visit www.tinyurl.com slash hhconvos. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST. You're a deeply spiritual person. That's one of the other reasons that I was really drawn to your work. And module two in your work, you talk a lot about a lot about the spiritual. I'm, I'm curious if you would care to share with folks like what your spiritual journey has looked like. Yeah. So I was raised in the church. So, you know, I remember I went to a church. I'm going to call out names. It don't even matter. I remember going to a church when I was really young, like with my mom. Mm-hmm. Temple Apostolic Cathedral. That's a serious <laughs> church. And like, I think it was in Cherry Hill. I was a little girl. And I remember going to that church with my mom and her friends. And I don't remember anything about the church for me personally, but I remember watching my mom be in the church and the way that she sort of tried to lead, like lend her heart to, you know, like, please help me. Right. Like I remember watching her you know, sort of ask for that covering. Mm. And then later, I think from watching that, I was the child that woke up everybody in the house at my auntie's house at 6.30 in the morning to get ready for church, like knocking on the doors. I laid out my dress the night before so that I could get myself Mm. together, okay? And everybody would get up because I'm like, I want to go to church. Like, so I was very drawn Mm. to that experience. But later, I just, you know, always inquisitive. Later in high school, I went through a lot in high school. High school sucked. I think high school and college sucked. Like, I, when, I, when I think about school, like my experiences, 
every stage was really challenging for me. But in high mm-hmm. school, I remember, then I started asking the questions like, okay, so if Adam and Eve, if they are real and stuff, like, why the Bible don't say nothing about the dinosaurs? Like, I'm just trying to understand because mm-hmm. like, I saw the dinosaur bones. I'm not saying I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. Where are the fucking dinosaurs in the Bible? Did Adam and Eve come before or after? Was the dinosaurs helping them with like what's happening? <laughs> and, like, I was really, I was really trying to understand. I was like, I, this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And the youth pastor said to me, "What church was this? I don't remember the church, but it was a Baptist church in Baltimore County." And I remember the youth pastor saying to me, "Dinosaurs ain't real." And I was after that, I was done. I was done. I told my auntie, I was like, listen, I will go to church with you out of respect, but I can't. Like, it don't make sense. And so I got into college and my freshman year of college, I was questioning everything. Mm. Like, I was questioning. I was like, all right. And of course, Spirit sent me a young friend. I'm not going to call his whole name, but I'm going to call him Kyle. So Kyle was talking about how energy and like the science. He was trying to teach me about universal laws, right? Mm. I was reading the Bhagavad Gita. I had the metaphysical Bible dictionary. I had sacred woman. I was mm. reading the Trinitarian. Like I was reading all the things, trying to identify like the connections. And that's really when I started to sit with African spiritual traditions and really explore that. By the time I got out of college, I was still seeking. I still wasn't clear I had problems with religion and its dogma and its complicity and oppression, and I'm still working through it. But what I've grounded in is I've been initiated as a priestess in the Yoruba tradition of Ifa, a priestess of Yemaya. And Yemaya is like mother, like great Mm. mother, like the oceans, like, but you don't want to fuck with her though, okay? Because Mm -hmm. you mess with her kids, her people, you know, you're going to get slaughtered, right? The water, being like water. Water can mm. be calm and soothing or it can fuck you up, okay? Yep. And so, Yemaya, and then I'm also studying hoodoo, um, really trying to connect and ground. And, okay, this is part of a lineage history on the continent of Africa. What about the ways that my ancestors, not so far away, right, communed with the land here in the United States of America. And that's pretty fresh for me off the last, like, five years. And I'm really surrounding in, like, the history and how to really come into that in my own identity. And it's been a powerful journey, okay? Like, still a challenge, because dogma. <laughs> All right? That's what I love about hoodoo, is that it's not about dogma. It's about communing with your ancestors. It's about reclamation. It's about embodiment. It's about the land. It's about honor. It's about using what you got to get what you need. Yeah. And one of the things that I really took away from doing your course the first time was this invitation to connect with pre-colonial practices of your lineage. And over the last several years, I've been really like flirting with like witch stuff Mm-hmm. And now I finally was like, oh, yeah, like Irish heritage, like mm-hmm. Wiccan, w- paganism, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. I've been doing some research there that feels really lovely. And it's hard to find, you know, all the pre-colonial stuff, right? But it's there's something really grounding about returning to where things began and that that connection with the earth. Like the more I do your work, anti-racism, all these sorts of things, the more I recognize how all of these systems have disconnected us from what is what made us who we are as humans. 
Yeah. And I think like what comes up for me as you share, thank you for sharing that too, is like the importance of us doing this both and, right? Honoring and identifying our pre-colonial histories, recognizing that we could have multiple pre-colonial sort of lineages, right? Because we got more than one parent line, patrilineal, matrilineal line, and it's thousands of ancestors, right? And so it could take us so many different places. But I do think, right, connecting to our pre-colonial history helps us to understand some of our karmic sort of energy, the ways in which we've been informed of what our responsibilities are to repair, but also to connect with and how does that look or how does that mesh or not with the colonial, post-colonial, post-colonial, I mean, (laughs) post-colonial. But, you know, uh, after the colonialism began from its earliest state, that's why I try to juxtapose, right? The All right, Nigeria. I also am studying sort of Bantu and Congo traditions right now. And then juxtaposing that with hoodoo helps me to get to a, all right, we got pre-colonial, we got colonial, right? How did Black folks heal? How did they survive? And then now, because now we have to co-create a new mm-hmm. practice in alignment with our modern time. Right. And that for me is what, when we bring that with our anti-racism work, mm-hmm. and to do that lineage healing work, right? Of like, I'm going to cuss out some of my white ancestors, okay? Like, I'm going to cuss them out. Okay, like, we it's a healing journey, okay? And anger <laughs> is a part of that healing process. Right. Like, yes. y'all out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to see if you're asking for some forgiveness, right? I'm going to ask for your support if you're like, all right, I'm trying to do better mm-hmm. now through you. But then that's when we start talking about healing seven generations back and seven generations forward. Mm-hmm. Because we have to contend with the past, past, past. The past. <laughs> <laughs> the past, 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 the past. Mm-hmm. And now, right? And where we'd like to take it forward, but we have to come in with all of our people because we are like the embodiment of all of our people. That means we got some fuck shit in us, right? Like that means that, you know, we got some stuff to contend with, but our ancestors that come in love and light though, you know, after they like, all right, I hear that you cussed me out. Can I correct this in this lifetime? Let me tell you what I wish I had done or Mm -hmm. I'm watching you now. I see what you're doing. I'm going to send somebody your way where on another lineage I was connected to support you in repairing more deeply. And I, yeah, I don't think that anyone seeking to do work that is anti-racist, that is anti-colonial, that is for the intention of decolonizing, that's for anything of true freedom and the collective liberation. I don't think you can do that without recognizing that there's multiple realms of life and energy. We are energy, right? That's what Kyle told me in college, okay? <laughs> we are energy. Kyle okay? fucking knows it. Kyle told me, okay? He's an engineer now. He know We are energy, right? And mm-hmm. energy doesn't die. So that means that our ancestors, they might be dead in the physical, but they're still here in the metaphysical. How will we contend with all of these beings that we see and we don't see mm-hmm. if we're trying to make something new? We all here together. The dead people, mm-hmm. <laughs> the living, and the folks that we are are inviting to return, right? Like, yeah, we can't do this work holistically, I don't think, without acknowledging our lineage journey. Mm. I have two questions Got it. One is on topic, one is off. I'm going to say the off topic one first so we can put it away and remember to say it by the end. 
I want to hear you talk about how you contextualize the similarities and differences between anti-racism work and liberation focus work. Mm-hmm. So let's put that in the corner, but mm-hmm. healing the lineage. So this and this, I'm just going to get personal, <laughs> right? And, you, and feel, Come on, Sarah. feel free if anything you don't want to say, don't say it. But your course started my exploration really into ancestor work. I got a book that felt really great, started doing the stuff, built an altar to my ancestors. Both my parents are dead. Didn't have a good relationship when they were alive. Better with my dad now that he's dead. My mom, she apparently doesn't want to have anything to do with us in the afterlife. So I am so angry. Ooh, I'm so angry. Like, and I've, I've been just bumping up against I don't know how to go back further when I'm so angry with the ones that were like right there. And I'm just curious about your experience. As you said, like you're cussing out some of your ancestors. Like, what have you done when you bump up against that barrier for your, or, or maybe it doesn't feel like a barrier to you, but. Oh, it's a barrier. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm actually going to ground it in the now and you'll understand what I mean in a yeah. second. So I think that in many ways, the way that we establish a relationship with our dead folks is similar to the way that we establish relationships with our folks that are alive. So I'm really angry. I have been really angry with my living parents, right? And it's an ebb and flow, right? Like I set some boundaries. I create a container. I give myself permission to be furious. I decide if I share that fury with them or if I simply need to share it with myself and release it, right? Side of my, am I giving it to them or am I returning it to the earth? Is this something that I have to share with other people for their own healing journey? Or is this something I simply need to keep from myself because maybe it's going to take a few other years for me to make sense of it, right? Hmm. So I think that relationship building, there are many things that are the same, no matter if our folks are dead or alive, right? The difference is whether or not you're going to hear them on the phone Right. Or if you're going to hear them in your dreams or in your mind's eye or at your altar or through someone else. Right. And so with that said, the way that I've coped with fury is one acknowledging that rage is intel. It's so important for us not to hold it, though, because it will become disease. I think it's Ken Hardy that tells stories about the use of rage and Mm. allowing rage into the space And I think one of the ways that I've managed deep rage and that I've helped others, right, deal with this is identifying where is it in your body, right? Because there's some things that can be said, but most of it is probably lodged someplace, right? Like, where is it in your body and how can we get it out? Do we get it out through dance? Do we get it out with music? Do we get it out with screaming? Do we get it out with physical activity? Do we shake it out? Do we fight it out? No, not hitting no human being. Right. But <laughs> some boxing. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> write it out. How do we get it out? And then what do we need when we are bringing this force within us that is scary to bear witness to? Who can bear witness for us to keep us safe in that space of rage? For me, is it going to be my godmother? Usually it's my godmother. Is it going to be one of my God's sister, right? Is it going to be my therapist, right? Your therapist is going to have to be really grounded and aware of the spiritual realm in order to do this. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be my therapist. Is it going to be another healer, right? Like a priest. But I think it's important, dead or alive, create a, a space. 
I'm going to contend with, I'm going to meet with my rage. I'm going to bear witness to it. I'm going to do this maybe once a month, right? I'm going to, you know, schedule this time for myself when, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask somebody to pull me back in who has the ability to pull me out of that realm when I've indicated that is enough. What boundaries am I setting for that? So I think that that is deeply important. And then when we're contending with, is it something that I give to them or not? It's like, so you said that your mom is not interested, right? It's like, all right, I think there's something else to consider in the same way that we sort of pull in our people to hold us down and hold the space for us is recognizing that your mother's mother, your mother's mother's mother, perhaps they have wisdom dead or alive that can support you Mm -hmm. in holding the space for it. Maybe they see it, right? Like maybe like her interruption has to do with a lineage challenge in the relationships with mothers. See, listen, my mother struggles with addiction. That is true. My grandmother struggled with addiction and passed as a result of Mm -hmm. her addiction. My great grandmother didn't struggle with addiction, but there's something that happened from my great grandma to my grandma and my mother. I talked to my grandma, but my mother living, I talked to my dead grandma who I never met before. She died when my mother was a child. Mm. I talked to grandma Lily now (laughs) about how, what the hell am I, can help me with what what the fuck, what, what, what I'm supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And and so I think if we open our minds to considering that our ancestors that are in love and light, that do want to work with us, that are prepared to do this work, that do see us and feel us, we can invite them or ask them or ask any of our ancestors that are willing and ready to work to help us make sense of, heal, uh, process the rage, right? Because they can hold the space spiritually and energetically. Mm-hmm. Another person that can hold the space physically, right? That I mean, that's how I've been managing it. You know, I went to one of my spiritual coaches recently and she was like, listen, your mama coming up again. I'm like, oh, she just can't. <laughs> I spent so many years mm. working on this mama stuff. I don't want to do it no more. Mm-hmm. The message that came to me was like, all right, Shauna, it's time for you to have another conversation with your mom. And so my plan, I'm going to share this with you pretty publicly. Like, I'm really interested in oral histories. You know, I'm working on um, my PhD. I'm really interested in oral histories and hoodoo and its connection to original healing wisdom and the acknowledgement, the need for acknowledgement in order to humanize Black wisdom in today's practice. And so, you know, what came to me was like, you need to do an oral history interview with your mama. Mm. So I scheduled with my mother. Am I excited about it? I'm excited and I'm scared at the same time because my capacity for it is different. So if I'm being responsible, I need to make sure (laughs) I got both. I called my grandma. I need to set my little altar for my grandma. Mm -hmm. Luckily, it's going to be virtual. Put my grandma right here next to me. And then, you know, who on this realm is going to hold the space for me? Because I don't know how I'll feel. That's how we nourish ourselves. This is going to be one of those episodes that I listen to again and probably like weep and receive the gift over and over. Like, yeah, what you said feels like it's going to be really meaningful for my journey. One more thing, though. I think it's important to remember that time isn't real. Right. Time is a social construct. 
And even when we start to think like, well, I have to do this before I die, but we just talked about it. Right. So I think that when we also release or relinquish the expectation that we get everything done before we die. But uh, Shauna, I am an achiever. (laughs) No, what you're saying. These these aren't the kind of things that are bound by time. Right. But they are informed by our intention and our Mm -hmm. request and our vibration. And, you know, perhaps you allowing your other ancestors to bear witness will give your mother the permission to be able to contend with the harms that she has committed or even and also possibly sharing the harms that she endured that has made it so hard. Right. Mm. I'm pretty okay. sure that was a message in there. I'm going to need to listen to it again too. that's the beauty of these conversations right when we get really real well let's let's take a turn and to my off-topic question about your conceptualization of anti-racism and liberation work oh man (laughs) so here's the thing liberation work is about imagination and remember when we were talking about the power of words and how the meaning of our words change depending on the context, the lived experience, what's happening in society, and when we're honest, the manipulation of the colonial <laughs> system that we exist within. I think that when we think about race work, when I think about race work and the original race workers, so for me, I love me some Ida B. Wells. Uh, <laughs> yes, you do. My necklace I bought myself is Ida B. Wells. I know the people. Oh, that's amazing. People can't see, but we'll post it somewhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but when Ida B. Wells was doing race work, that anti-racism work mm-hmm. was liberatory because it was outside of, it was seeking to shatter a racist system. It would bore out of her body and establish deep and depth and connection and community. It challenged the status quo. It was for all Black people, right? Now, when we say anti-racism, at this point in 2021, (laughs) post-Trump and the Biden Harris experience, Mm -hmm. this new uh, sort of swig of atrocity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anti-racism means Black Lives Matter plastered on an institutional organization. It means Steve Madden changing their logo to show red, black, and green. Mm. It means usurping, right, Mm. words for capitalistic, imperialistic intention to pacify. Mm. And so that is one way it's being used. And so it's the responsibility of those that are anti-racist to reclaim it and to, you know, juxtapose it. So anti-racism has to do with our actions, our awareness of the history of racist systems. It has to do with awareness of the ways that we have been negatively impacted by and harmed by racism. So injected oppression for Black folks internalized superiority or supremacy for white folks. And that is important. I believe it is an important pathway that we must take to begin to reimagine, right? Anti-racism does require us to imagine, right? What would the world be without it? But it really centers on what we don't want. We don't want racism. 
Right. It doesn't illuminate what we want. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It, it says what we don't want. We mm-hmm. don't want racism. We don't want you to do this. We don't want you to do that. And when we talk about what we do want within the confines of anti-racist work today, it's usually Black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, and other folks of color wanting what white people have. Mm. And that is a limit. It yes. Limits, it is, assumes that what white folks have, and now at first it assumes that white folks are well. <laughs> which which we know is not the case. Right. 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 Like no beings, no community of people that could stand to allow the slaughter and lethality, the destruction, the epistemicide, the destructive way of knowing. No people that are well and grounded in their body and vulnerable, right? would allow that. So why would I want to seek to have within a colonial system and structure what that is, right? Liberation focus work says, let's commune with the realities and the complexities of colonialism, that liberation, that decolonization is an act and not simply a characteristic of something that we can sort of like do one and done, right? Like the decolonization isn't a metaphoric expression that to decolonize is is a very specific thing that I think should be stated on a global perspective of indigenous peoples in the world. Mm. To be liberation focused in the way that I talk about it in my liberation focused healing framework, it means for us to have the space to illuminate ancient ways to contend with the harms of colonial and imperial interest. It means it includes all the other isms, not just racism, ageism, sexism, childism, transphobia, homophobia, binary thinking, Mm -hmm. environmental racism, right? It means we're going to contend with the original ways. We're going to identify the harms done by this colonial and imperial system and we're going to honor the people that have been most harmed, most downtrodden. And we're going to support folks in reclaiming their identity. We're going to support folks in doing their healing work so that they can begin to reimagine society as a whole. We connect to these ways. We're going to hold the space for it. So anti-racism is a pillar. It's so important. Yes, when we are clear about what it is. It's important. We can see it in our behaviors. But liberation work exists outside of the confines of these systemic entities. It challenges all of our institutions. It seeks to shatter them, actually. And it seeks to make deep reparation and a shift in shattering of power of patriarchy and whiteness and all the other isms. Mm. I wish we could talk for like 12 more hours, but (laughs) I want to be respectful of your time. And I didn't even ask you the questions that I normally ask, but you know what, people, who cares? We talked about the stuff that was important to talk about. So where can people connect with you? Where can they find you? How do they get more of your good wisdom? Absolutely. So folks can follow me at Healasista, H-E-A-L-A-S-I-S-T-A on Instagram, on Facebook, and my website is shaunamurraybrown.com. Brown with an E, y'all. Mm-hmm. Don't, but if you Google Shauna Murray Brown, it's going to come up. Yep. She got good SEO, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm saying. I'm saying. Come up. Folks can also, I'm encouraging folks to follow Therapy That Liberates on Instagram and Facebook. Folks like you, Sarah, 
and those that are working in our in our learning community, practitioners, healers, mental health providers, eventually it'll be sort of organizers and educators, but Therapy that liberates.com and therapy that liberates on Instagram and Facebook is how folks can connect and gain access to the cadre and community of folks that are dedicated to really embodying the liberation focused healing framework in their life. And it provides access to Black folks specifically, but also brown folks, Indigenous folks, and other folks of color and white folks right? To, I'm trying to get therapy. I'm trying to have the space healed, held for me in a way that is anti-colonial, that is anti-oppressive. Right. So that that's how, y'all, just Google my name. Yep. It's yep. going to come up. Yep. <laughs> and you're just, you're already such a bright, shining light. But I, again, I just feel like you're going to continue to expand. And so if you've not heard of Shauna yet, you're going to continue to see her everywhere because your work is just, it's so rooted in healing. It's so rooted in, I can tell that you've done the work from the inside out. Doing, Sarah. Right. Don't Doing. Yes. You're right. Yes. It's never I done. I would love to be able to be like, I am healed. Right. Right. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you for being here and thank you for creating the community and, and all of the opportunities for learning that you do. It's, it's healing work. That's it. Yeah. Our only way forward is together. Now, do you adore her? I mean, I told you, right? <laughs> so thank you so much to Shauna for being a guest on today's show. To find out more about her, you can visit us on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. And as always, thanks to the amazing Andrea Clender and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.